it's the first Tuesday of the year. It feels like, I don't know. It feels like new year's was about 10 minutes ago, I guess. And man, oh, I of course ran over here two seconds unprepared, but all the same. Yeah, it's, it was a good break. I took a couple weeks. I swore I wouldn't do any work. So of course I did a ton of work, but yeah, I'm, it's, it's good to be back. It's good to be here. Uh, we're going to answer some questions today. We're going to start the year really, really strongly, I think. And, oh, just as a, as a note before we get going, I'm going to sneeze any second. Other than that, um, stay tuned uh, at the end of this because there's an announcement about what's happening tonight. It'll be good. I think it'll help. But for now, yeah. Let's, uh, let's finish getting all the ducks in a row and I will be, uh, here in seconds to get everything all set up. So like count to five, uh, and then we'll get going. Okay. We good. You all right. Okay. Let's go to work. And now we'll see how good you are. Do you mind telling me what this is all about, mister? He'll teach you everything. Language and writing were made available. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Uh, so uh, anything that you could do to uh, to help would be very helpful. My thanks, of course, to my good friends over at Katsuro Beats for putting together a new intro. Thanks, everybody. And hi, I'm John. This is the first Writer's Chat of 2024, the Writer's Chat for January the 2nd. Uh, and if you don't know who I am, hi, I'm me, you're you, and uh, I've been a developmental editor and writing coach now for 20, 20, it'll be 26 years this year, which is bananas to me. But here we are all the same. And if you don't know what you're doing here, if this is the first time you've ever been here, first of all, awesome, welcome. This is the writer's chat where I'm going to answer I think it's 13 questions this week, uh, plus whatever questions from people in chat. Hello, chat. It's good to see you guys. I hope you're doing well. I'm sorry some of you have had to go back to work. It sucks. I hear you. But it's really nice to be here and really wonderful to um, 
to do this. Shall we do the traditional opening? Shall we, shall we hit this thing off? Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, dreamers, enthusiasts, anti-capitalists, anti-colonialists, um, revolutionaries, nacho lovers, soap likers, razor blade manufacturers, anybody who's ever considered buying a ukulele, people who have uh, found a deep and abiding love of bad television, anybody who can laugh at some good cartoons, and most importantly, the comrades. It's great to be back. It's great to be here. It's nice. I've missed you. I've missed doing this. And there are some fantastic questions today. So if you're in chat, if you're if you're watching this live on Twitch, or if you're catching this after the fact on YouTube when it goes up there, uh, ask your questions. And you on YouTube, leave them in the comments down below. Please don't forget to like and subscribe because that actually does mean something to me. It's not just algorithmic nonsense. And if you're watching this on Twitch, don't forget to follow and subscribe if you so desire means a lot to me there too. But if you're also watching this live on Twitch, you can leave your questions and I will happily answer them as they come up. Shall we get going? You want to do this? There's some good ones. First question. Here we go. Don't, don't fuck up the year. Everything's riding on this question. It better be good. Question number one, how do I set realistic expectations for myself? Okay. So it's January. And people love making resolutions. They love making these big, giant public demonstrations, public displays of what they're going to do and how they're going to manifest things and how they're going to make stuff happen and, and how it's just going to be their year. And here's a stream of gifts to recognize how it's going to be their year. And I don't know if you know this, but the vast majority of people who do those things, they, they don't get the things they want. They're not guests on those podcasts. They don't lose, you know, a hundred plus pounds. They don't quit smoking. They don't stick with going to the gym. They don't start a novel, finish a novel, get published, get a movie deal, anything like that. And that's because while they're very good at saying what they want, it's wonderful and easy to imagine and daydream a bigger, better world. The hard part is the doing. The hard part is turning that idea into an actionable plan. It's great that you want to do X, Y, and Z things. I think you should. I think you should do 10 times more than X, Y, and Z. But only, and this is a big one, but only if you have a plan made up of reasonably sized steps that take you from one piece of progress to the next, to the next, to the next, and so on. Because if you just say something like, Oh, I'm going to, this is the year I sell a thing to Hollywood. Okay. Where do you get started? How do you make that work? This is the year I'm going to write a novel. Cool. What's your first step? What's your second step? What's the fifth step? By turning a goal into a set of actionable steps, you can actually do reasonable steps, not just like write thing, sell thing, win, but turning that into like, I'm going to write X number of words, then I'm going to write more, then I'm going to keep doing this, then I'm going to keep doing that. By turning it into something actionable, you reduce the intimidation factor. You reduce the frustration level. And yeah, you arguably stretch out your distance from where you're at to your goal. But all of those actionable steps are things you can accomplish. Instead of being, I'm going to write a movie, it turns into, I'm going to write two pages of a screenplay every day. 
two pages is a lot less intimidating than I'm going to write a screenplay that gets me into Hollywood. Your reasonable expectation comes from your ability to break down your dream into steps you can do. And to get better at that, you have to do it. You got to practice it. So pick a goal, pick any goal, break it into steps, figure out what those steps are, figure out what step feels too small, and then go a little bit past that. Figure out what step is the first step where you really start to balk and go, I don't know if I can do that. Because that's generally a good indicator that you're more or less in the ballpark of what that first step should be. Realistic expectations doesn't mean think really small and never try. It means you don't always say the big giant thing for attention or clout and then fail to follow through. Follow through discipline, get your ass in the chair, put your fingers on the keys, make that appointment, go to that meeting, admit you don't know something, learn, struggle, fail, try again. All those things will get you much, much farther towards your goal than sitting here and telling everybody on the first Tuesday of the month or first Tuesday of the year that you're, you're going to have some big, crazy plans. Make them small. Do them. You'll have a lot better time. On we go. Question two. How can I figure out how many books should be in my series? Okay, this is a planning question. It's not a matter of just picking a number, though you can do that. I, I should point out that this is not one of those things where there is one exact answer and everybody else is wrong. It's just that there is an organizational way to do this, and that's to look at the arc of your series. So from book one to book however many is determined by the progress your character makes in doing something whether that's resolving a major conflict, whether that's defeating a big giant enemy, whether that's learning something, whether that's gaining or losing something or just changing over time, you know, whether it's, you know, I have four books in my series because there's four years to the time my character will be doing X topic or whatever. The course of that series, the length and the way you split that up determines how many books it should be. Now, if you're creating something like a corpus, like a canon where it's just going to be, I've got a detective, they're going to solve cases until the end of the universe, then there isn't an exact magic number as to how many books there should be. There's going to be one or more. But if you've got finite constraints, then the number of books is determined by those constraints. It's however long it takes for my hero to go from, you know, a small, plucky, suburban kid all the way to, I don't know, um, jousting a, a, a senator on the, the fields of, of Roman antiquity, something like that. Figure out what the arc of the series is and then slice it into roughly equal portions. Chances are it's going to be lower than you think. And that's okay. It's okay if your series doesn't have 12 books. It's okay if your series has six or five or eight or two. It's all right. Like there isn't, yes, bigger numbers sound better because that means more sales and that means bigger book deals and that means more everything. But it's okay if, if you also don't want to do that. It's okay if you just want to do two or three and get out like and then move on to another series or move on to another thing. That's fine. But you're going to figure that out based on the trajectory of your series arc, which, by the way, should not only be the plot of your book, 
It should be the big umbrella under which all the individual plots sit. But if you have a question about that, ask, and I'll break that down too. On we go, though, to question number three. How do I know if my protagonist has enough agency? Agency, if you have no idea what that is, is the ability for a character to take actions and make decisions on their own. They do it of their own accord for their own reasons because they want to accomplish their own goals or, or activities. They're going to do the thing. It's not they're, they're not ordered to do it. They're not forced to do it because, well, what else are they going to do in the story? That character makes a choice to do that thing. That's agency. Your character has enough of it. it and there's not exactly a number here. It's not like you need to, like, you know, you got to be this tall to ride the ride. There's no, there's no quantity exactly, but you have enough when your protagonist is able to take actions and make decisions that directly move the story forward and directly make a difference in the world. What's that mean? So if, again, we're going to use the detective from our previous series question as our just example, because it's pretty straightforward. When your character decides to investigate the clue and then in the investigation, we uncover more clues and that moves the story forward. That's agency because it's the decision to do a thing and then act on that decision. If your character is only doing half of those things, like they're just acting, I'm going to do this, but they, it isn't really clear why other than if they don't, the story stops and it's not really clear that they chose to. It's just kind of like, Oh, the character is here because somebody else drove them or somebody else seems to be, you know, leading them around. And our character is, the passenger in the car, but either literally or figuratively, your character does not have any agency there because some other set of conditions beyond their choice made them get involved with the story. That's a lack of agency. Characters without agency are really hard to connect with because it seems like they're not really affected by the, by the story. They're not really like paying attention. They're just kind of like present floating in the background, not doing anything. What you want is a pro, especially with a protagonist, you want them leading, making decisions, doing something about the decisions and dealing with the consequences. That's your trifecta for agency development. If you're going to ask me, is it possible to have too much agency? Not really. I, yeah, sure. It's possible in the same way that it's possible to just to have, you know, too much of a good thing, but there's no there's no theoretical like maxim to dictate how much agency is too much because the agency is what's driving your character to do stuff. So if your character is always making decisions, really the question isn't so much, I have too much agency, it's my character is doing too many things, which is a different question and a different issue that really is just more about pruning the story down to what it should be or what it could be as opposed to all the millions of things it has. It's a great question. Now, chat. People there of an indeterminate number because I can't see how many people are here. I know there's at least one because they said hello to me. Hello. Um, anybody out there in chat have any questions? Hey, everybody. The T of record today is green. Like, nice green. I, it was a gift. It's really strong. Uh, I'm I can feel my eyeballs vibrating 
behind my lids. It's the exact state I want to be in to work. It feels great. Um, it is also cold because it is cold in this room because the heat is out again. So I'll deal with that after the chat, but, uh, for now we're drinking, we're drinking relatively iced green tea. Okay. My writing question says chat. It seems like a lot of people are into pen names. Yeah, sure. That's, that's fair. When should you consider using one? Well, there's a couple of reasons that would motivate someone to use a pen name. First of all, if you don't want to put your name on the thing you're writing for whatever reason, whether that's like a legit reason, cause you're about to say something that'll get you into like death threat territory. Um, but also more panic induced reasons. Like I don't want people to know that I write sex books or something, or you just really, really using a pen name is about creating a buffer between you and your sense of authorship. Some people want to use that pen name as a permission slip. The author, this pen name, this character I invent can say the things that I, the person, the human don't feel comfortable saying. And that sort of character gives me an outlet for my stuff. Some people use it to hide. Some people use it to just make a distinction. Like let's say you're someone whose last name or first name does not really reflect how you identify or who you are, or it associates you, it associates you with people you don't want to be associated with. Use a pen name, change your last name, just go to your initials, something like that. Although small, it doesn't, you don't always need to like create this new dramatic thing, but yeah, it, or for instance, as also suggested in chat, if you just can't, if it, if you don't want to make somebody try and spell your name because it's, you know, got a mouthful of consonants, then yeah, you, you want to try and find an easy and palatable replacement just to spare everybody the difficulty of understanding why four consonants can get into a row. The, the real thing of it is it's what you want to do with it for the people who are hiding behind it. And I mean that not in a, in an, an aggressive way, but in the people who are like, I don't want people to know I'm writing a thing because they'll judge me. I, they're the people with whom I usually get fussy with when it comes to pen names, because I don't think you should hide. I don't think you should hide. I, I don't think you should stop liking what you like and stop creating what you want to create because you're afraid someone in your church group is going to find out that you've written a sentence using the word penis. Like that's, that's just weird to me. Like own what you love and say it proudly because who cares? What are they, what are they going to do? Come and take your keyboard away. You're going to let them. The people who have a, an intention behind their pen name beyond just, I want to be sheltered from judgment. They're the ones who I find tend to use a pen name that is more dynamic, more suggestive of who they are. And it's not like I used to be really like against pen names. I've softened in my old age, I guess, because go ahead if you want to use it, but use it for a reason that doesn't deny your art. Use it for one that helps you create more. Other than that, yeah, slap your name on there. Good question. Great question. Any other questions?
You're very, very welcome. It's good to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for asking questions. Somebody asked me, um, they, they found me online and were like, Hey, how come you don't shout, you know, people's names out in, in Twitch when you're reading the chats, it's cause I'm miserable with names and the name you are, the name you show up on, you know, on my screen, I know people and I've gotten, I've made mistakes. I've confused people based on their, their Twitch handles and I, it's embarrassing and I, I'd like to be better than that. And I, I'm, I'm certainly not going to ask everybody to start using their proper name because I can't do that. But at the same time, understand that I will talk to you, but not necessarily name check you because nine times out of 10, I have a rough idea who you are and I don't want to embarrass myself by going, yeah, your name is whatever your name actually isn't. I'm tired of appearing like I can't keep track of people. I promise I can it's just names are a thing, but anyway, shall we go more questions, more things. Question number four, how do editors set deadlines? This comes up more and more as I talk to more writers who are pushing into traditional publishing spaces, your traditional publishing editor, will set a deadline based on about three factors, sometimes four, but generally just three. First factor, uh, they're getting pressure from the, the tier above them, the publisher, the, the usually the financial people involved in the publishing side of things, to determine when this book has to move forward. It has to go to the printer on X date in order to make the deadline they've set. So we then count backwards and go, well, in order for it to get into its best shape before it goes to print, it has to be done on whatever certain date. And then from there, you work backwards to figure out, okay, so if it needs to be totally done by, I'm going to make dates up July 1st, I need to get it back from the author by June 1st, let's say, giving the editor a month uh, June to July in order to make whatever changes, polish it up, clean it up, finalize it and send it off. That's the process. The other factors depends on the shape of the manuscript. Is it really messy? Is this a thing where the editor is going to have a lot of zoom conferences where they're explaining like, Oh, this is a problem. That's a problem. What about this? What about that? Have you thought about this? And it really needs more editing than it probably could you know, get in a short period of time. There's a lot of books that are, you know, rushed out the door to some degree because spending so much time on them would be counterproductive to the financial interests. Ideally, what should happen is that you should go to publish your book and people take as long as it takes to become the best book version it can be. And your editor is patient and kind and knows what the fuck they're doing. And it helps you become a better writer. The problem is in traditional publishing, that's not a priority anymore. The priority is how quickly can we make a product that we can sell to make our money back? So those deadlines become these very inflexible things rather than just sort of milestones. Also, some of those deadlines are affected by another financial consideration, contract terms. If writers, according to their advance and their payout schedule in their contract, get paid at certain points, you want the book publication or the book strategy moving forward to line up with that stuff. You don't want the book moving at one schedule and your author payouts at another schedule because 
it feels disorganized. It feels disconnected. And a lot of publishers want everything nice, neat, pretty, and clean. So you end up in a situation where your deadlines become fairly informed, fairly stiff, fairly conditional on things. And, and oh boy, how do you help you if the author needs to move one? Because really uncomfortable conversations occur outside of the, the writer's space, because what do you, what do you mean they need an extra two weeks? Uh, that can throw a book back six months to a year. It's a lot of dominoes and they do love to topple. That's how editors set deadlines. Question number five, what is a growth curve? Okay. There are two different growth curves to talk about. I'll cover them both. One growth curve refers in a narrative perspective. It has to do with a story and a kind of story where a character is, is maturing or developing in some capacity. They're getting better at a skill. They're, they're, you know, mastering the sword forms. They're getting better at casting magic. They're becoming a better lawyer. Usually there's a montage or something involved in film, right? The growth curve is the rate and direction the progress of the character moves in. They try, they get better, they fail, they have a setback, they keep going, they get better, and it generally trends upward positively, meaning it gets better over time, and the amount of progress they make increases over time in a slightly parabolic, a curved kind of way. It's not, if we're going to you know, visualize things, it's not a straight line. And it's not at like a 45 degree angle. We're not like making a right triangle out of our chart here. We're going to curve a little because we want to spend time and space on the page, developing it maybe in a regular stage for a while. Maybe we're going to plateau for a little bit before we reach the next challenge. Maybe we're going to stay and stretch something out before we move on. That's fine. That's called a narrative growth curve. It's the progress a character makes. That is generally going to happen in your late first through second act. It's going to stop probably around the climax of the story, though a lot of great story structures have the climax of the story be the moment of the character reaching its final greatest growth point, because that's the moment where everything hangs in the balance. So finally the character casts the right spell or does the secret judo move or something. That's the moment where it really sticks out. That's a narrative growth curve. Here comes the other one. The authorial growth curve is the projection and the, and the trajectory a writer goes on to make progress towards not only their immediate goal, but their improved quality in writing. How well you write, the improvement you make is marked in a growth curve. So if you spend a lot of time writing, but you're not seeking advice, you're not getting feedback, you're not, you know, doing anything involving other people. You are just sort of doing more of the same. You're not really growing. You're just passing time. But when you invite criticism and feedback and you take some lessons and you ask some questions and you, you know, practice your craft, you get edited, you get critiqued, stuff like that. You can learn what you're doing wrong. You can see the mistakes you didn't know were mistakes. You can make a difference with that. And your growth as a writer can be charted. Generally trending upward, we hope. Generally nearer a 45 degree line than a curve, than a curve, than a parabola or a half a parabola. But hey, we're getting somewhere. 
that authorial growth curve is something that can't be self-taught. All right, let's be fair. I'm sure there are some humans on this planet who can make progress on their own independent of other people. They can just read a thing, assimilate it, acquire a new thing, acquire a new skill, a new perspective, a new understanding, and then move on from there. I'm sure that has to be possible. It's just very unlikely. I think what happens too often with writers is that they think if they just keep doing what they're doing, writing, you know, I, I'm a member of all these groups that don't contribute to the groups. They don't chime in. They don't step up. They don't say anything. They're just there taking up space. And somehow, some way, unknown to us all, they're going to osmose information and it's just going to click for them one day and then they'll get it, whatever it is, and they'll write better. I think that's the, the operating conditions for a lot of people. I wish it wasn't. Not just because it's part of my job to help people have a growth curve, but because it's sort of like the difference between saying, I want to become a competitive swimmer but I only ever swim in circles. Sure, you're swimming, but you're not accomplishing your goal. You're just in, you're in the neighborhood, but we're not doing anything. It's fixable, super fixable. All you gotta do, try. Reach out for some people, ask questions, get some help, avail yourself of more opportunities, and speak up. Be willing to appear, you know, foolish or uninformed, or embarrassed, you know, be willing to be wrong. It's not bad. It's hard. It sucks. No one wants to look stupid for a hot second, but it's how you get better. It's how we make a difference with stuff. It's how we do things. So grow, try. It's not going to magically fall out of the sky. It's not going to magically change from day to day just because you keep writing and, you know, fattening the book up and blowing past your word count and all that stuff. You need other people. You need feedback. You need help. Yes, the coach part of a writing coach. It's what I'm here for. On we go. Is there a difference between a hetero meet cute and an LGBTQ plus meet cute in a romance novel? I don't know if you know this. Uh, especially, and maybe you don't, if you're totally new to everything I do, about 70% of everything I do is in romance novels. I'm surprised about it too. It's just that there's a lot of people writing a lot of different romance novels. And in fact, the majority of the romance novels I work on are not hetero. It's pretty rad. But a meet cute is a kind of fundamental building block in a romance novel. We've seen it in rom-coms. I think we've talked about it before too. A meet cute is a, is a scene where character A meets character B in generally a cute, fun, quirky kind of way. And then they meet and then the, you know, the story picks up and takes off from there. So long as there's a positive impression made during the meet cute, you know, they, they notice each other, they laugh, maybe they're, they, they both spill coffee on each other. Ha ha ha, ho, 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 you know, tee hee, tee hee. And then they, they move on. If it's not a meat cute, if it's a meat sad, let's say they, you know, they both are crying over the grave of a, of somebody they knew that's a meat sad. As long as a positive impression between the two people is made, your, your meat cute works. Some meat cutes are better orchestrated than others, but the goal was always the same. 
Is there a difference though, if we have straight characters and queer characters? No. A meat cute is a meat cute is a meat cute is a meat cute. It, it doesn't, it, it's often handled differently. You know, you'll have two guys in, in a, in a gay, uh, in a gay meat cute, you'll have two guys in a different circumstance. It could be an office, but it could also be a, a gay nightclub, different circumstance, same concept. There's no functional difference. All we're changing is the set dressing, the setup, the situation, the colors on the wall and the, the names of people and the situation that's happening. But what it is does not change. On we go. Chat. There's a lot of you now because now I'm seeing more people. Are there other, you know, meet something suffixes like a meat fight? Yeah. Yeah. There's a meat fight. There's a meat fuck. Um, there's a meat cute. There's a meat hate meat sad. Uh, pretty much any kind of suffix can be bolted onto meat and it'll work. Um, really the condition, once you change the suffix, you end up in a situation where, um, instead of a positive impression, cause a meat cute has to be positive. The characters have to positively bounce off each other and go, Oh wow. I really had a good moment there. Cool. Uh, off I go the I, and you have a, a has a, a lingering positive memory of character B who they just met, but in a meet sad or a meet fight, the impression isn't positive. It's two people, a and B, they bounce off each other and they, they walk away wanting to, you know, punch each other in the nose or a meat fuck is basically a hookup character. A really into character B really high sexual tension, really high urgency to act on that sexual tension. Usually after, you know, post meat fuck, the next thing is a sex scene, whether it's what's called a disposable sex scene, which is you just sort of hand wave the sex or an extended sex scene where you detail the sex. That's up to the author, depending on what they want to write. Usually if you're going to go with a disposable scene, it's because you want to deal with the morning after. If you want to just get into how well you can describe two bodies doing body things, you extend it. But yeah, there's tons of other meat suffixes. You can... Pretty much anyone you could list, there's probably a formula out there to build one. Just remember that it's not always going to be the same condition. A meat sad is not cute. It's it's a bummer. It's supposed to be a bummer. The name gives it away. Great question. Yeah, no problem. Happy to answer. Other questions? Other things? We doing what we do. Shall we keep marching on? On we go. Question seven. Give me an example of a science fiction trope used in a non-science fiction genre. Okay, sure. So science fiction trope. How about we do... Let's do... So, uh, magic, uh, weird science savior, weird science savior in science fiction is, uh, using a piece of machinery or, uh, a, a, a theory or, or something crafted just for the story, a, a thing specific to the story. 
uh, that hasn't been used so far. It's sort of like Chekhov's gun where we introduced a thing way, way early and it, it was like no big deal. And then all of a sudden, ah, it's the secret to our problem. That's weird science. It's usually a machine or a, a theorem that allows something to happen. Outside of science fiction, you could use that idea in sort of a broader, we take the science fiction away from it and we turn it into, you know, I was reading this book this morning that was talking about uh, prison abolition. And now the key to the story, the whole key to our novel, the key to our climax here is to remember the, the legal citation in this book about prison abolition, because that's what we're going to use to get our defendant uh, secondary character out of jail or something. That's, that's applying a genre trope outside of its genre. You have to strip away the elements that bond it to that genre. So it becomes a little bit more broad, but you can still use it that way. In the same way, if we were to step away from science fiction entirely and use like a uh, a romance trope in a legal thriller, you can set up a relationship between two characters with a meet cute. It's no longer called a meet cute. It's just called a meeting because the circumstance isn't inherently romantic. It's just, Hey, this is how character a meets character B and the two of them go form a two person law firm so that they can go do the legal thriller story. Does that make sense? Is that, that's pretty straightforward. You want to strip away the specific elements and its intentions to get at what the kind of uh, the kind of trope that it is, action trope, character development trope, plot trope, pacing trope, story trope, stuff like that, climax trope, and then apply it basically with the serial numbers filed off. Probably the easiest way to say it. On we go. Question eight: How would I begin planning? A Koya, a CYOA, which is a choose your own adventure. That's a type of book. Uh, we used to have them when I was kids where you start reading and then it says, if you're, you know, if, if you want the character to go left, turn to page 15. If you want the character to go right, turn to page 47. It's a nonlinear form of storytelling. You want to begin planning it. There's two approaches. One of them is generally more successful than the other. But there are two major approaches you can use. Approach number one, you write the story out as though it were just happening, usually a page or two at a time in linear fashion. So that if the person was reading left to right, as per usual, they'd have the whole story. And then you take each of these individual things and you mix up their page order. So even though it's page 15, you turn it into page 50, just lift, copy, paste, renumber the pages. That's one strategy that's going to do pretty well for you. However, the other strategy, a bit more chaotic, at least in the abstract, will give you a better product overall because you're going to map the story out. And to do that, you're going to create what's called a tree diagram, which is basically a series of forks in the road. You have a starting point and it branches off left and right. And then each of those branches branch off left and right. And each of those branches branch off left and right. And sometimes everything comes back together. Those are called spoke or hub moments. And then they branch off again. I did not make a graphic for that because they get messy quickly and I only have so much screen space. But the point is 
the story, you, you map out, well, you could do this and you could do that. And you have to think in terms of potential, which for a lot of writers is messy because instead of potential and they could go left and they could go right and he could put the dog down and he could pick the dog up and he could throw the dog and he could have a sandwich and not have a sandwich. And rather than think about the coulds and woulds and possibles, they think about he has to do X. We have to move forward. That's the only way. So they think in results rather than potential. And it makes a tree diagram and other kinds of possible non-binary planning strategy difficult because you run into this resistance of, yeah, he could do that, but it's not the right thing to do. So why would the character do that? And when you're writing a CYOA, it's not about making the right choice. It's about making a choice and the reader discovers whether or not that choice was right or not. You're not, you, the author, have to get over the idea that the reader, the reader wants the character to be right, but the reader is willing to be wrong in the course of getting there. They don't mind a mistake and a choose your own adventure. It's part of the story. It's part of the experience of engaging with the book. Let them make mistakes. Oh, you turned right. Now you're stuck in a dead end. Go back three pages. Okay. It's not... It's not a race to constant perfection that the way linear fiction is where the character makes the right choice or even when they make the wrong choice, it's because it leads to a beat that allows them to overcome. Nonlinear storytelling is a lot more, or I should say it should be a lot more organized by default. So were it me and, and you were coming to me going, hey, John, help me write a choose your own adventure. I'm going to hand you a tree diagram. And I'm going to explain to you how to fill it out. And then we're going to fill it out for each act of the story. And then go from there. We're going to treat it a little bit like an RPG, but that's, that's not what this question asked. Um, that's more of a clienty thing, but still, yeah, tree diagram. It's the way to go. On we go. Question nine. What would make you turn down a potential client? Okay. So I, I have to confess, here's a John Fession. I, I wrote these slides and put this stuff together well before New Year's. When I saw this question come up and I knew I wanted to do it, I went back and I looked at the number of clients I've had or the number of potential clients I had that I've turned down. And I keep notes. Uh, what's the word I want to use? Obsessively is probably a gentle word for it, but, um, I keep notes on everything weekly, sometimes daily, sometimes both to date, starting in 1997 to now, I have turned down 11 clients. That is people who I've had multiple, more than one meeting with, not just, Oh, I'll come back and talk to you when I get paid. And then I never see them again but people who I've had at least one meeting with that ultimately it did not work out 11. And most of the time, the things that have made me say, Hey, you know what? This isn't working out are the following things. It is not very many, um, out of the, I've had what almost 300 total 11 is, is tiny. I've been very, very fortunate to be blessed with many, many hardworking people and many, many great authors and creatives. I'm very, very grateful. Here are the factors that have led me to turn people down. 
Uh, one, they spend an equal amount of time to their writing, talking shit about me. And then I find out about it later. That doesn't really happen so much anymore. That was more of a young John thing. Two, um, they, they don't actually do the work. Like they don't give any intention. They want the end result, but not the effort. So I know it's not going to work out. Uh, three, they're a Nazi. Or I discover they're a Nazi pretty quickly after they tell me or extol the virtue of the book they're going to write. And then they reference, hey, have you seen this guy before? I want to do it like this. And then I've never heard of that guy. So I go look him up and I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a guy who believes in eugenics. Okay, that's not going to work for me. Or uh, generally they get really, really angry at uh, either what I do, how I do it, or the fact that I should be paid for what I do. Those are the biggies. Um, a lot of people, when they find out what I do, they scratch their heads at it because I think they think what I'm doing is wasting their time, like helping you schedule, helping you get past writer's block, teaching you about how to make a thing better seems not what they signed up for. They wanted somebody who would just tell them what to do or somebody who would probably more likely tell them that they were doing great and they should just keep doing it. Second of all, um, they don't like how I do it. Um, things like consistently using one form of, of word processor with comments and track changes can be frustrating to people because it means I have to comment on your work. And some people don't like being told, Hey, that's not how you write that kind of sentence or this dialogue doesn't make any sense. Rewrite it. Things like that really bug people. And then the third, probably the most apparent, um, I should get paid for my labor. You should pay people for their labor. So pay me. And yeah, it's going to cost you some money because it's not cheap, but that doesn't mean it's like bajillions of dollars. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to, you know, ask, Hey, do you need a payment plan? Or how can we make this work for your budget? It's just that the fact that there has to be a budget, you know, this isn't like, can I give you $10 and you do my book? No, but money is often an issue where somebody's like, uh, I'll get back to you. Or, you know, you charge so-and-so this much. Yeah, but that was one, a different thing. And yeah, it becomes a whole problem. And yes, uh, although I've never had somebody ask me, please edit my work, but leave no comments or markup. Okay, thanks. Bye. Uh, I have had some people give me some really interesting responses to comments. Like, I wasn't expecting you to leave as many as you did. Or I don't think, I had one lady once tell me that I was wrong. I, and I don't mean wrong. Like I highlighted a thing and she disagreed and she wasn't going to make the change. Cause that happens all the time. That's no big deal. But I was structurally and technically wrong. Like I, I said, Hey, that's not how you'd use a, just a colon, a straight up colon. And she was using them wrong. And I said, so, and then I said, Hey, you can go look in. I think I was using Chicago at the point, the Chicago manual of style, this paragraph, this page, here's how you do it. She just told me I was wrong. I've had that experience once. It was, it was surreal. Um, but yeah, most of the time, the number one problem, if, if we're talking about problems I run into, it's people say they're going to do a thing and then they don't show back up. You know, I, I quote you a price 
I think it's a very reasonable price relative to what you're trying to accomplish. I give, I can, in a lot of cases, tell you how long it's going to take more or less, you know, three weeks talking about writer's block could make a difference. Chapters, whatever. I can map a lot of things out. I've been doing this long enough, but most of the time it's the people who say, Oh, well, when I get paid, I'll come back. Oh, when my schedule clears up, I'll come back when, Oh, 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 you know, you know, just let me get through the holiday. Let me just get through, you know, this or that. And then they never do. That's the ones that stick with me. That's the ones where I get frustrated because just come back, just try, just make a difference. I, and like, if we had a, if it's okay to say you're freaked out, I'm scared to write a book, John. Cool. Let's talk about that. Let's start there. Let's make it not scary. Oh, I don't know if I can do it. Well, you're not doing it alone. I'll help you out. Just got to give it a try. But I generally tend to turn down clients for clients being shitty people. Otherwise, I'll, I'm apparently considered very patient by some folks, which is shocking to me because I don't think myself a very patient person. But mostly if you're an asshole, I'll turn you down. But by and large, I'll give everybody a shake. That's just me. Good question, though. Okay, chat. Questions, comments, thoughts. Yeah, we're good. Keep going. It is very low numbers. It is very, very low numbers. I'm very grateful. Uh, I've had far, far more success stories or, or people en route to success stories than I have had people where it's just, I've had a lot of people quit. Let's be fair. I've had a lot of people walk away. I've had a lot of like, like get your toes up to the, to the finish line, nearly one step away. And then, then off into the West, they diminish. But, um, yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't been uh, struck by a number of folks who have just been like, Oh my God, you're a terrible human. And, and I don't want to deal with you. I have fired some clients generally for the same stuff. Like if I find out you're, you know, a terrible racist or something, I will fire you. Or if you're, um, just generally shit talking me while telling me to my face that I'm, I'm wonderful and great. Or if, um, the amount of work I do is just disproportionate to what I'm getting back in you. Cause I, I tend to team up with my client. I we're in this together. I want to get you to your goal. I want to help you. And I'm, I'm willing to go more than my 50% in a lot of cases, but you, you, you have to try, you have to, you have to do more than, than, than nothing. And I've had some time. I've had, I've had a couple people where it was just like a real, a real struggle, a real slog to, to, to just deal with them. It was always frustrating. It was always aggravating. It was always too much time for too little return, always complaint, always a problem. Minimal effort on their part has almost always soured the relationships on me that have gone sour. But yeah, 11 people out of nearly 300 is not a lot of firings. So 
yeah, that's me. I'm sure other people in my field have different numbers, but also other people in my field have far more clients than I do. Shall we keep going? Yeah, let's keep going. Question 10. If chapters can be any size, and they can be, does that mean scenes can be any size? What's to stop me from having giant scenes? Nothing. Chapters can be any size. Scenes can be any size. Most times I'm going to tell you that a chapter should be one or two scenes. And that's not because that's the rule, but that's a great way. It's because it's a great way to organize information, have one or two things happen and then move forward. Sometimes you can have three things happen. It's not a rule. It's a suggestion to help you stay organized. If the one thing that happens is a big complicated deal, like a climax, for instance, yeah, that chapter, that scene can be huge because it should be because you want the reader to pay attention there because the stuff that happens there matters. Whereas a smaller chapter where it's just, I don't know, two guys driving a, you know, driving an RV across the country and all they're doing in this particular chapter is just reaching a certain destination. Well, that's going to be like a one page kind of a thing. And that's fine. What's going to stop you from having giant scenes? Your ability to write them, I guess. I mean, I, I, you, you could have a scene that's as big as you want. Giant here is subjective. I like, you might say giant is five pages and somebody else might go, no giant is like 20 pages. And as long as the scene functionally accomplishes what it does, it moves the plot forward. It moves the character arcs forward. It suggests theme It does the stuff you, you need it to do. The size isn't really going to come into question. We're not, we don't, we're not making widgets, the widget factory. So things don't have to be a certain size. They just need to be able to do the thing you want. Nobody's sweating size here. At least you shouldn't. I know people do, but that's because they're looking at a finished book and assuming that it was always in that state. You know, you, you buy a book and you, you, you flip through it and you go, ah, oh, chapter 15 is four pages. Therefore, all chapters need to be around four pages. That's not a writing decision. That's an editorial decision. That's a printing decision. That's a marketing decision. That's a, that's a publisher decision. From a writing perspective, your job is to tell the story. And if that means that, you know, chapter 20 needs to be twice the size of chapter eight, well, okay, then I guess that's, that's just how it is. Nobody's going to think to question it if they're engaged in the story. Don't overthink it. You'll be fine. On we go. Question 11. Is there any value to parentheticals or footnotes as an aside to the reader? Oof. No-ish. No with an asterisk. I... I Okay, we have to kind of take a step back to answer this question more effectively. If you're writing something in a particular casual voice, let's say like a blog post or a newsletter, then a parenthetical aside where you step out and you mention something that's not the direct line of what you're saying, but it's sort of like a little comment on what you're saying, 
or you're going to expand on an idea or say something snarky or make a joke or something like that, then yes, a parenthetical can be useful if the voice sets it up. If I'm writing a first person, all my newsletters and stuff are in first person. So if I'm writing a newsletter and I need to say something where like, I'm going to say, uh, as I did on discord the other day, see, this is the part where I'm going to talk about other people. The fact that I'm calling your attention to something and then I will go do that thing. The parenthetical is justified because it's how I wanted to construct the casual sounding voice to do what I wanted to do. Footnotes in fiction need to be something that are made useful by the voice and context. If you just randomly start chucking out footnotes because you're just trying to make jokes and the jokes are jokes because jokes are jokes and like joke, 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 joke. And we're just there to, you know, show off how funny you think you are. Footnotes aren't going to work there because in that case, you're using a footnote as a piece of meta commentary. You're using a footnote as a tool to say, Hey reader, I know you're reading a book here. Here is a joke because that footnoteness will get lost on a character unless the character is in on the metafiction too. And generally in fiction, you don't want a parenthetical. Most of the time when you want to make an aside like that, constructing a better sentence will do the same job without needing the parentheses. A lot of times you'll see people break out parentheses in third person fiction, for instance, when they're trying to explain things generally to lighten the tone or create humor. And the thing they're saying isn't funny, nor is the moment they're saying it in the best time to be funny. So is there value? Yes. Sometimes rarely, depending on voice beyond that. No. And I got to tell you, especially in a first draft, if you're, if you're, especially if you're a first time writer doing a big first draft, don't, and, and your gut instinct is to go parenthetical because you're writing in first person and, and you're talking to the reader. Don't, don't do it. Because if, if we're already in the first person's, you know, the first POV and we're in their head just as part of narration, you don't need a parenthesis. Just go, go write the sentence down because we're already in the character's head. We're already hearing their thoughts. There's already that kind of relationship between reader and character. There's nothing to be aside about. You can keep it to yourself and then off you go. So put an asterisk by the yes and, and on we go. Question 12. What's the worst part about editing a bad draft? Narrowing this down is difficult because there are in a, in a bad draft, there are many things to cause much stress. But I think for me, the worst part is that it feels like it takes forever. It feels like it'll never end. It feels like it just keeps going and going and it, it's just bad all the way through and all the way around. And it feels endless in an awful way. That's, to me, the worst part. Whenever I deal with a book that is just a mess, and I know it's a mess, I know it's going to be a mess tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, and this thing has 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more words to go. And they're all going to be, you know, kind of a pain in the ass to deal with. The worst part is the fact that it just feels like the book will never end. This is complicated by weak writing or um, a, like, like the writer pro wanting to produce something and say something of a certain degree, but their writing skill not being there to match it. And you're left with a situation of just sheer frustration because I, I want them to be better. I want them to do well, but at the same time, they are trying to swing for the fences when we should really be talking about how to hold the bat in my sports metaphor there. Cause I think given enough time, given the right kind of support, given the right kind of training, I think anybody can hit a home run, knock the ball out of the park. I think everybody's got it in them, but getting there is a different journey for every single person. And some people will come to it sooner rather than later. Some people will need a lot more help on certain parts and not others. And some people are lucky enough just to be knocking them out at the first pitch. But a bad draft feels endless. It feels like we are miles away from progress. And there's this weird tipping point that happens because once I start feeling like, oh, this thing's still going, holy shit, how is this still happening? My fear shifts from, oh my God, it's endless to, I don't know if this person's going to really be okay with the amount of things I'm pointing out. It's such a mess. And it's so packed with comments and notes and problems and me saying this, flagging this and grabbing this and saying, cut this and all the stuff I do. I start worrying about, they're going to really freak out and not do this. And to me, like, that's just part of the process. That's just how we do things. The whole point of this is to become a better writer, I would hope. And in order to do that, sometimes you have to realize that you don't need the scene where everybody buys a sailboat. So the scene goes. A lot of people get very attached to their stuff and they get very attached to their sense of who they are as a writer. And having that shaken, having that questioned, can be really uncomfortable for people, especially when they've like gone and done like three more steps of work like that. They're, they give me the book to edit and then they're telling everybody, oh my God, I have a cover for my book and I bought my is bin and, and I'm, I'm ready to write my marketing. Slow down, slow down. We are still just in the middle of the edit. How about instead of, you know, running down the road so far because you're really excited about it going well. How about we stop for a second and take a look at the notes and the things so that whenever you're ready to move forward, you can. Don't run so far ahead. Just work where you're at. On we go. Question 13. The last question of the day. Where do question 13, where do I even begin to trying to write better from draft to draft? I think some people have an expectation or an idea that going from a first draft to a second draft is really clear. You just fix your mistakes. You chop some scenes out. You change the way you wrote a thing. Maybe you cut and paste a lot of the first draft intact to a new document 
or maybe you just give the document a new name, but it's very clear to go from first to second draft. Sort of the story finds itself, the, the, the skeleton and form of it coalesce out of all the possibilities and all the pieces. I think that's really straightforward. I think people run into a real problem uh, and a lot of head scratching when they go from second to third draft because there's less to cut usually. We, there, it's not, the cuts aren't so dramatic. It's not like, hey, slash this whole section out. Hey, let's take this, you know, the sister is gone. Cut the sister out of the book. The, the changes are a lot smaller, or they should be, or they could be, or they possibly need to be a lot smaller. It's change this sentence. Stop using this word. Let's change this person's name, maybe. The big changes having already been done, we're now in more of a polishing stage. We're no longer chiseling away big chunks. We are polishing and, and, and prepping the, the near end result in our second to third draft or in our third to fourth draft or anything like that. We are getting closer and closer and closer to done. If you are, if you are closer to first draft than finished draft, you begin by cutting out the things you definitely know you want to cut, lose the scenes that don't work, cut the checks. You know, we, we had this extra character, take them out things that, are very obvious and very apparent. Always start with the big cuts first. It'll give you a sense of accomplishment and it, it's easy to do, relatively speaking. It does not require a fine tooth comb. However, once you make all the big cuts, then you gotta start making small ones. How, how can you take a particular sentence, whatever it might be, how can I take this sentence and see if it is the clearest presentation of its idea? Now, sometimes, a lot of times, it's going to be by default. You wrote it, it's clear, you don't have to touch it, it's okay. However, sometimes there are different ways, better ways, sharper ways, more dynamic ways, more engaging ways to say the thing you want to say, and that's what gets changed. And that's where I think a lot of writers fall into that cycle of constant revision because they can find five other ways to say a sentence. They have no problem finding five other ways to say a sentence where they have a problem is knowing when the way they've said the sentence is enough as opposed to it's perfect. They want perfect. They want some kind of objective, ideal sentence. Couldn't say it better. Does everything it needs to do. Does it in the best way and shows off how smart I am. Perfect. When, and that that's lofty, like, my, if we're doing a visual hand thing, the hand's way up in the air. However, where you want to aim is for best function. How well can I say this thing so that it does the job and gets us to the next sentence and it's not a mess? That's not always going to be pretty in the perfect sense. Sometimes it's going to be, you know, a split infinitive with a comma. Sometimes it's going to have you know, a had in there, or it's going to be passive, or it's not going to be passive, or it could be whatever the sentence is, but it's going to do the job. And it's okay that it just does the job, even though it's not the greatest sentence with the word sink in it that could ever possibly be. No, it's just a sentence, got the word sink in it, and on we go. Those smaller changes and the ability to know that I've made a change and I'm going to stop screwing around with it and move on to the next thing. That's how a draft and that's how a writer gets better over time. Learning when to say, no, I've done enough. 
I'm not going to rewrite this for the 30th, 50th, thousandth time. Makes a huge difference. But begin with the big stuff and then go back literally line by line, literally word by word, questioning, can I say this clearly? Have I said it clearly already? Do I need to make this clearer? And when I say clearer, I don't mean how do I say this in the fewest number of words or how do I say this without saying so much? I mean, this sentence, whatever it might be, says something. How well does it say that thing? Do I need to add more words? Do I need to change words? Do I need to take words out? Does it need more punctuation? Does it need less punctuation? It could be a billion things, but it's these words for now. What about them needs to be changed? If something can be changed and I want it to change, I will go change it. It could be a lot of things, but I'm happy with it. It works. On we go. And look, if you're just not sure, if you're, if you're thinking about this, yeah, that makes sense, Sean, but how do I know when it needs to be changed? I can't tell myself. That's when you go get help. That's where you go ask for a critique partner or you go get a writing coach or you go get something edited or you go to a writing group and get feedback and you bring in somebody else who isn't you, who isn't, you know, aware or, or biased towards or against what you've already written. They've got some new fresh eyes and they can interpret the material differently. But you start with the big stuff and you tame that and you get familiar with that. And most importantly, you feel good about doing that. Oh man, I cut 3000 words out. Oh, I, I, I finally tightened up the ending. I know how to end the book now. And Oh, I, I fixed this dialogue that I was always, you know, clunky. And you build on your successes. I've done 15 things right. Let's go after that 16th now. Okay, here we go. It makes a huge, huge difference. But start with the big stuff and then work small. Great question. Before we get out of here, any other questions, chat? Now, before I go to the outro, I did promise way back at the beginning, I did promise an announcement about what's tonight. So hang on a minute while I scroll down here and I tell you about tonight. Now, tonight, I will be right back here. That's right. It's a two stream day because tonight I'm talking about theme, you know, theme the thing that all publishing says your book should have and all the stuff that matters. I'm, I'm going to talk all the way through theme, what they are. I have a list. It's a long ass slide. There's like a hundred themes. I'm going to go through a lot of them. If you're on the discord, by the way, um, the whole list is available and you can ask a million questions all you want to it. Please do take advantage. But um, yeah, theme. I want to teach it tonight. I want to cover it, talk about how to build them, how to fix them, what they're supposed to do, where they go, how to make it work, how to avoid problems with it. I want to cover themes. So I will be right back here on twitch.tv forward slash John helps you write better at 7 p.m. Eastern. Now, it's also worth pointing out that just like the regular chat, this will also be up on the podcast feed when it's done. 
But tonight we talk theme, one of those big giant boogeymen in writing. It's time to demystify it and it's time to do something with it that can actually help you do what you want to do. So that's coming tonight. Shall we go to the outro? Shall we outro? Let's outro. Work complete. I'd like to thank uh, Midas for producing the new outro music. It's a bit more chill. I like chill. Chill's good sometimes. I want to thank everyone for being here. I want to thank you for hanging out, asking your questions, being in chat, having conversations, just being great with this. Uh, you can check out everything I do. It's available on YouTube. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for John Helps You Write Better. And thank you for everything today. Welcome back to 2024 and more and more writing advice. All power to all people. I love you. And I will talk to you tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern right back here for theme in all its thematic goodness. I should make the outro a little longer. Oh, well, either that or I'll get better at hitting the post. Thanks for being here. I'll see you guys in a couple hours for more. Have a delightful day. See ya.